Yeah, this is this is the question in these mountain communities and most mountain communities today is is how do we make it possible for people to build a life in our community? You know, how do we make it possible for people to build a career, to have a home? The challenges we're facing aren't unique to Revelstoke. You're listening to Think Revelstoke, a show about the future of tourism in Revelstoke and the greatest challenges of today's tourism destinations, along with their most inspiring solutions. We're speaking to you from beautiful Revelstoke, British Columbia, a city on the territory of four nations where we live, work and adventure, the Snipes, the Shwetmek, the Silks and the Tunaha. I'm Rodney Payne, CEO at Destination Think. And I'm Robin Goldsmith, Destination and Sustainability Manager at Tourism Revelstoke. As part of this podcast, we're reaching out to industry experts and leaders in other destinations to hear their perspective on how we can manage tourism for a better future. Today's guest is someone I've been looking forward to having on the show, Kathy Ritter. I've had the good fortune of working with Kathy in the past in her former role as director of the Colorado Tourism Office. She was leading Colorado for nearly a decade and was successful, I think, because she placed such a great deal of importance on her stakeholders. Kathy has a wealth of insights into the tourism economies of some incredible mountain towns all throughout Colorado, like Vale and Aspen and Steamboat and many others. Kathy, we're hoping you can be our crystal ball as we peer into the future. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rodney. So nice to see you. Kathy, could you just briefly for us describe your role and relationship to the tourism industry? Well, I have been using the the experience that I've gained as 10 years, over 10 years as a state tourism director, both for Colorado and for the state of Illinois, to bring practical solutions to destination managers who are struggling with a whole host of issues these days. Um, I've had a, a particular specialty in working with those destinations that have really been blessed with too many visitors in recent years. And those are the destinations that really seem to be under the most pressure to come up with good solutions for managing the impacts of tourism. And so I think the uh, orientation that I bring to this work is really around not only managing the, you know, finding effective ways of managing the issues that arise from tourism, but figuring out other ways to, for communities to derive more benefit from the tourism that they do attract so that tourism becomes um, more of a net positive that it outweighs that the impacts, the positive impacts of tourism actually end up well outweighing any of the negative impacts. What are some of the challenges and patterns that you've seen across the different communities and and Colorado's mountain towns as they grow? I think there is a uh, sort of a hangover from 2021. Um, So many destinations, not just in Colorado, but across the West, actually across the U.S. and the world were slammed because people were breaking free of COVID restrictions and they were seeking um, outdoor destinations in particular last year. And so many destinations felt pressures that they had never felt before. And unfortunately, we've seen a whole lot of decision making based on a one asterisk year of experience. And I think, um, you know, some destinations are waking up to the fact now that um, tourism has leveled off, 
that visitors are making different choices and have made different choices um, this past summer, and those pressures have eased off. But I think it really has been a wake-up call to lots of destinations that they need to do things a bit differently in the future. Absolutely. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is that Revelstoke's often compared to Colorado uh, towns, particularly uh, Telluride and um, Crested Butte. We have sort of a history of industry and then moved into a town with with a really epic ski hill, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So thinking about a town like that, if you could go back 30 years ago and uh, wave a magic wand, is there any anything in particular you think you would do or um, any restrictions or um, things you'd put in place to ensure that the community would thrive because of tourism? Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, there was probably unbridled enthusiasm for driving economic impact of tourism 30 years ago. And there really wasn't much um, attention given or even responsibility accepted for managing the impacts of tourism. I think uh, 30 years ago also there really wasn't much of an awareness of the importance of involving the residents of a community in the decision-making around tourism and to make certain that, you know, money from tourism was ending up in resident pockets and, and that residents were finding a way to be part of the tourism economy. Those are all the, um, the strategies that many, many destinations are embracing today. You know, one, um, you know, and, and there've been so many disruptors uh, in the in the past 30 years. I mean, who who knew Airbnb was going to be a thing um, 30 years ago? And so one of the uh, one of the things that that uh, alarms me, especially when I go into an underdeveloped part of the West, is the excitement they have about suddenly uh, getting Airbnb in their community. And I want to say, whoa, hold, hold on a minute. You know, just make certain that you have the right safeguards in place so that um, you know, Airbnb isn't impacting your work, your supply of workforce housing, or it's not disrupting neighborhoods. You know, you may want to think about alternatives to Airbnb or use Airbnb in in certain settings. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is in Cut Bank, Montana. So Cut Bank um, has been uh, redeveloping some empty, empty industrial buildings for Airbnb. They redeveloped a roadside motel into Airbnb. And so when, when you start pursuing strategies like this, it isn't disrupting neighborhoods and causing a lot of unintended consequences. That's interesting. It's hard from our perspective to see that a community would be really enthusiastic about starting Airbnb when you're coming out the other end and, and just trying to uh, restrict growth there. I guess a, a follow-up question on that is, uh, do you think that the only way mountain towns don't get hollowed out the way that we see some of these growing destinations do is by putting constraints on growth? You know, that's a very hard thing. Actually, what we're seeing um, in Vail, for example, is the population is actually shrinking. Uh, for the first time in decades, their population dipped below 5,000 in the 2020 census. And it's, it's mainly due to a loss of young people and young people are, um, are making their way to other places where everything from the housing to a beer is more affordable. And that place feels more like a place where people live. So I think, you know, rather than putting restrictions on growth, I think communities need to be very mindful about creating conditions to make their communities places that people still want to live. 
Um, it, it's, you know, unless they want to become a community of storefronts and restaurants, um, you know, if that is the plan, um, you know, continued, you know, attention to the to attracting more tourism related businesses is the answer. But if they want to make certain that their community retains the vibrancy of a place that people live, they have to put other strategies in place and they have to think about what people need to be able to live in that community and address that. And a lot of times it's possible to use the proceeds of that tourism economy to help make those priorities happen. What are some ways that you've seen destinations successfully use proceeds in the way that you mentioned? Well, um, I'll go back to Vail. That's uh, a community where uh, a plan is coming together. And, you know, there was, uh, it was interesting. Uh, Vail has a a large population of seasonal residents. About 60% of Vail's housing stock is owned by seasonal residents. But they expressed the same concern that residents in Vail and residents down Valley expressed about a loss of sense of community in Vail. A lot of that went back to a loss of the feeling that it was fun to live in Vail. Um, that there were, you know, that people kind of yearn for those natural connections with their neighbors, with other people. Vail's a town of 5,000 people, slightly less, that attracts 2.5 million visitors a year. So you're more likely to see visitors on the street than you are your neighbors. And so um, part of, you know, the thinking that we're starting to to hear from locals is around you know, finding those ways to create those neighborhood connections, finding ways to restore the sense of fun, kind of reviving some of those wacky Vail traditions that, that made life in Vail fun years ago. And, you know, creating, taking steps, and I don't want to share the playbook now because the plan is still coming together, but finding ways to give, give locals a sense of ownership in their community as well. So there are ways of doing this. I think the biggest challenge for many destinations is recognizing it. One of the things that makes mountain towns like Revelstoke or Telluride really special is the community. And Kathy, thinking back a few years, you and I got to spend a little bit of time together in Telluride uh, when we were doing a workshop, and I think about that a lot. It's that, that sense of community where people come together for something they, they love or, or care about is often the reason people move to small towns or, or choose to stay, but also part of what makes the the experience for visitors so special as well. And we really need to obviously protect those communities for a number of reasons. And you mentioned creating places where people want to live. How do we bolster these communities and, and how do we how do we keep people from leaving, especially when affordability is such an issue for the people working in tourism? Yeah, this is this is the question in these mountain communities and most mountain communities today is, is how do we make it possible for people to build a life in our community? You know, how do we make it possible for people to build a career, to have a home? Uh, because oftentimes those homes are out of reach of the salary of, um, of a local worker. And, um, you know, unless you're, you know, uh, one strategy is to have a highly collaborative relationship with satellite communities that really become the feeder communities to your destination. Another is to build that housing and make it affordable. And um, that's a path that Vail has been on for a long time. Other mountain communities are starting to accept that responsibility. But what it takes is a commitment really from local business operators that they share responsibility for being able to offer 
housing for their workforce. It's, it's interesting that, you know, these models have existed a long time in some places. For example, Mackinac Island in Michigan is an island. They, the only way they were ever going to have a workforce was to create housing for them. So workforce housing has been in place in Mackinac Island, Michigan, almost since the inception of its tourism economy. That's, that's the only thing that made it work. Um, and you do find, I think, increasing number of places, certainly in Vail, where business owners know that to have a um, adequate workforce, they, they're going to need to take steps. They're going to need to take responsibility for providing that um, housing. That's not, you know, but that's not going to be present in every community. Another um, path that a lot of um, destinations have taken that actually originated in Vail is the creation of deed-restricted housing, which... Um, allows a community to provide housing at a lower cost and allows, you know, workers who work in that economy to buy a house at lower cost. The downside is uh, that that property doesn't really appreciate the worker who buys that property doesn't get to realize the gains, even if they live there for the next 20 years. So there's downsides. There's no perfect solution. Um, You know, but I think um, a lot of thought these days is going into how to solve this problem. And a lot of states and destinations are using their American Rescue Plan Act funding uh, from COVID uh, recovery to address affordable housing, workforce housing issues. So there's a, a new source of funding available in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I'm curious, um, you, you gave some really good examples of, of housing, deed-restricted housing being something that um, we've seen in, in comparable destinations as well. Um, and I'm Curious if you think there's a way that we could take some of the economic benefits of tourism, um, so you know the, the money that's coming in from these visitors, and put that towards um, issues that the community is facing, and I think particularly housing being the big one in, in mountain towns. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's uh, you raise an interesting question, Robin, and you know because the imperative for destination leaders for decades has really been to protect that media budget. You know, that has been the, the prime directive, <laughs> you know, for um, for destination managers. And, you know, with um, with many of these most popular destinations, most stressed destinations, uh, really experiencing an abundance of visitors, suddenly these destinations are facing having their dollars taken away um, because the perception is you don't need those for marketing anymore. So, you know, there's a real opportunity for destination leaders to start thinking differently about the right uses for the, the dollars that they're generating with uh, through a tourism economy. Vail is a, is a town and the town government is really managing the tourism economy. They have a long history of using the, in fact, their whole town is almost, um, their town budget is pretty much funded by tourism related sales tax revenues and, and real estate transfer taxes. So that town has been plowing the proceeds of its tourism economy back into um, ways to make the community better for years. And that's really where its um, sustainability accomplishments have come from. That's how it's protected the environment. That's how it's developed its recreational opportunities. And that's how it's been funding housing as well. Our industry has been talking for a long time about the shift from promotion as a responsibility for for tourism boards and destination marketing organisations into destination management. And there's often a lot of inertia within an organisation, within the tourism stakeholder body, 
of, of that shift that, that sort of has acquired skills and sees the destination's role as promotion, right? Get more people here and, you know, we'll, we'll manage the experience. Do you have any thoughts on how to help tourism stakeholders understand the importance of the shift? You know, I, I think one really helpful way to look at that is by um, reframing promotion as a management tool. Now, we've used promotion as a management tool for many years to attract visitors. That's that's how we were managed. You know, that's how we were managing. We were attracting visitors. And now uh, there's opportunities. And, and in some cases, it's still important to attract visitors at certain times of the year um, or to new uh, developments in your or new attractions in your in your destination but you know I think it's also helpful to use it at look at marketing as a way of managing visitor behavior of um, you know encouraging visitors to do the right things when they're in your destination even if that is you know patronizing um, you know certain activities that bring more benefit to your community so I, I think it's really about just changing that mindset about uh, marketing only being used for attraction um, and, and thinking of marketing as a broader management tool with a lot more possibilities. Uh, so you've mentioned bail a couple of times, and so that might be your answer, but I'm curious, um, what's the best managed mountain town that you've you've seen and, and why, or, or a really great example that comes to mind? You know, I would also point to Breckenridge. I think Breckenridge has done an extraordinary job of um, engaging its community in decision-making and explaining to the community why tourism is a benefit. And one of the most powerful examples from Breckenridge, and I've shared it so many times, um, is that through their planning process, they helped residents understand that the only reason their community of about 5,000 people had access to 27 new restaurants that opened in one year and a Patagonia store downtown was because, not because of those 5,000 residents, but because they attract over a million visitors. And when you start putting it in that kind of perspective, it helps people understand how, you know, all of this would vanish without, without our visitors. And the other thing that Breckenridge, I think, did extremely successfully was help people, under, you know, really dig into when Breckenridge felt crowded. And it turned out it was really 28 to 30 days a year. So less than one in 10 days a year did Breckenridge truly feel crowded. And, you know, that helped residents also come to an awareness that, that you know, really for one out of 10 days, we get to have all of this and we get to have all of this benefit because of tourism. So I think it's really important to, um, <laughs> to, to continue to communicate with with your community to put things in perspective. And then on that one in 10 idea, that one in 10 notion, Breckenridge really put some, some um, energy behind that. And so for example, the Breckenridge Tourism Office, one day out of every 10, they found a sustainable way to get to work. So they didn't drive their cars, they either bicycled, they carpooled, they walked, um, but they found a way to reduce congestion in town one day, one, one day out of every two weeks, one out of 10 work days. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's doing those kinds of things that are not just symbolic, you know, that really do get to the heart 
of a community's angst and coming up with some, you know, some reasonable solutions that make sense to people. One of the things that I've observed more and more in the last few years during the pandemic and, and as we learn to live with COVID is a lot of talk in macroeconomic circles about different models and, and perhaps more sophisticated ways of measuring success. And I think we're seeing similar things within tourism as we start to look beyond just the total number of visitors and start to look for you know yield and what people would think of the, the right kind of visitor for their particular destination that, that aligns to culture and the type of experience and really gets a lot out of the trip. And, and looking sort of under the hood a little further at the true costs of the tourism economy and, you know, benefits that go beyond just economics as well and starting to paint that entire picture and think more sophisticated about it. Have you seen anyone implementing um, a model that, that really starts to shift the needle using the me- measurements as a tool? Well, I, first of all, Rodney, I want to say you and your team have been so inspirational uh, about the value of taking that path. And it, it's really influenced um, the way I approach things too. Um, I, I think it's, I, I can't say I can point to a great example of someone doing it yet. Um, that's certainly a path that um, I've been encouraging clients to take. And I think there's, um, you know, there's some very logical moves that destinations can can take. I think there's there's a trepidation around narrowing the the target segment a little too much. But one of the things that I've been seeing in my work with multiple destinations over the past year is this yearning for residents, I mean, for visitors who respect natural resources and who respect the local way of life. Because a lot of the pushback has really been around visitors who show up oblivious to a desti- what a destination cares about. Sometimes they're rude. You know, we've heard about trash everywhere, um, you know, impacts to, to natural resources. And so I do think there are, I do think it's extremely important to make certain that a destination is mindful about attracting residents who are going to, to be, to fit into a community more seamlessly. And if a destination's in the position where their target traveler truly is, um, you know, a, a, a type of traveler who isn't naturally aware of these things, then they need to go the extra mile to really make certain that this educator is, that this traveler is, is educated. I do think um, there's a lot of opportunity around attracting that sustainable traveler. The sustainable traveler, um, you know, a, a traveler who's interested in a low impact traveler ex- uh, travel experience, um, you know, who wants to soothe their conscience by traveling more mindfully and responsibly, is far more likely to have those qualities that um, that outdoor destinations in particular are seeking because they have a natural mindset to protect natural resources, and this is a large enough market segment, and it's growing. So I think there could be a lot of there could be a fight for these travelers because those are those are truly the travelers everybody wants. So many of the things that you've said to us today circle around bold ambition and and quite a big departure from the way we've approached tourism for a long time. And I see so many parallels between different places around the world. I'm, I'm working with the Cook Islands at the moment and in a couple of destinations in New Zealand on very similar things. And 
the this this idea of a low impact traveler i think as you said is is going to be a big part of our future as as people as communities start to really think about the impact of tourism and and what it does to their their place and as travelers start uh to understand i think that you're, what you're saying is very uh, sage advice for us yeah if if i may make one last comment i'll i'll share a pet peeve <laughs> the um you know, so much of the discussion around the sustainable traveler has centered on whether travelers are willing to pay more for a, tra a sustainable travel experience. And it's almost, that discussion to me has almost become a distraction um, around who the sustainable traveler is. Because a lot of the behaviors that are required to travel sustainably don't cost a dime. You know, and so I think um, we also, as we're shifting our thinking around all of these other things, I think we also need to shift our thinking about what truly constitutes a sustainable, low-impact traveler and how we can make more of them. We need to grow our own. That's a that's a great observation. I think you, you mentioned the sort of fighting over the, the number of sustainable travelers when really it should be about destinations working together to grow that number of, of sustainable travelers. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Kathy, for joining us. And we're just beginning our destination management journey here in Revelstoke. So we really appreciate your time and, and valuable insights. Well, thank you for inviting me, Robin. There's so much advice in what Kathy's told us today that is important for us as a town. And I think one of the, the biggest things that I, I wish I could help everyone in Revelstoke and, and the tourism industry here know is that the challenges we're facing aren't unique to Revelstoke. And the undertone in many of Kathy's very thoughtful answers is that nobody has figured this out. And managing tourism, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. And the importance of the planning work that you're leading us through, Robin, uh, is, is to help the community define our answers too what we want this to look like. Yeah, I think a lot of the the destinations she gave as examples, you know, Vale and, and Breckenridge are a little further along than we are here in Revelstoke. Um, and it, it gives me hope, you know, at the at the point in time we're in with respect to the development of tourism, that there is a lot of opportunity here to get this right. Um, she spoke about Vale and and how it, it sort of lost some of the things that that made it feel really special for residents and even the, the part-time residents and that they're trying to bring those back. And I think we're still in a place in Revelstoke where we have a lot of community soul. Uh, and so there's something to really hang on to here and we're not fighting to get it back, which is really reassuring. It's one of the reasons I really was hoping that Kathy would join us on the show. I think that there aren't many places with a world-class ski resort that have managed to preserve their community well. And I'm not sure that anyone really tried because they, they maybe didn't know how explosive the growth would be. And we have a moment in time here in Revelstoke where we're, we're feeling the pains of growing and we have a thriving tourism industry and, and really big opportunity and getting that balance right is really important. We are midway on a highway between two massive cities, but we're not close to a huge population center. 
we're still two and a half hours away from an airport and we haven't developed our airport in town. So there's a lot of decisions still within our control that uh, we can we can be intentional about as part of this planning. Yeah, she mentioned uh, a few different ideas uh, around housing. I mean, housing is, is the big issue, um, I think, regardless of where you are. And there are so many different ideas there. I think that's the one where we see people doing, she mentioned deed restricted housing, housing and bail. We have the Whistler housing authority as an example. Aspen has 3000 units of affordable housing. Uh, Crested Butte has rules around uh, the development of secondary suites. And I'm just really excited to collect a lot of those examples uh, because I think everyone's trying to reinvent the wheel that maybe um, we can we can borrow from our predecessors and see if there's a solution that really works for us. Yeah, and some European cities are banning short-term rentals outright. Noosa in Australia is one example of a town that has a uh, a cap on new builds to limit population. You know, there's there's different ways of managing um, short-term rentals. You know, Fernie has an interesting model that over time I think we could learn from where. You, you can only rent your private residence and it's it's time limited and how long you can do that. Obviously, there's enforcement issues, but luckily with the plan we're building, we have a really long-term view and that creates a ton of opportunity. When we're looking 50 years out at what Revelstoke might be, it's easier not to get constrained um, by short-term hurdles and, and start to think about how do we put in place things to me- really, really protect Revelstoke uh, for the next generations to come. This has been Think Revelstoke, presented by Tourism Revelstoke and Destination Think. Our hosts are Robin Goldsmith and Rodney Payne. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Lindsay Payne and Annika Rautiola provided production support. Our show comes from the beautiful city of Revelstoke, British Columbia, Canada, located on the land of the Sinaixt, the Shishwetmek, the Silix, and the Ktenaha. You can help us out by subscribing to future episodes, sharing with a friend or colleague, or by leaving a review. Next time, we'll speak with two local residents with distinct perspectives on how tourism shapes Revelstoke. See you then.